This is Ty Tabor from King's X, and you're listening to Focus on Metal. Hey, Metalhead, Scott Thompson here, presenting you with yet another Focus on Metal special edition. We've been doing a lot of special editions and special projects lately, and this one is yet another flavor for us. We thought it'd be a pretty cool thing to actually do a conversation of a band's discography, all the regular studio albums with a member of the band. So when Richie came to me a little while ago with this idea, I thought, well, you know, it's another one of those far-reaching ideas that Richie had. We managed to pull it off with the Strange Highways episodes, and I thought, hey, why not? We'll give it a shot. So we are proud to present as our first discography front-to-back look of a band, talking with Ty Tabor of King's X, and we are going to go through every single studio recording and just have a talk with Ty about that. So before we go any further, I just want to say that we can't say enough about how cool Ty was about this. Worked really well with Richie, got everything set up, took a ton of his own time to do this. Great guy to talk to, really open, honest, asked a lot of questions. We had a Great, great time. We had a lot of laughs. I just, like I said, I just can't say enough about how really nice and down to earth and cool that Ty was to talk to, to have an artist give so much of his time for this. And he's really not out promoting anything. He just wanted to do it. I think that alone says a lot about how the people in this band are. We've had interactions with two out of the three guys in this band so far. And it's been the same thing every single time. We've come away just stunned at how just incredibly generous these guys are. So, as I said, it's an idea that Richie came up with. And we actually had some interest from other folks maybe wanting to join in. And so this episode actually came very close to having Rex Brown come on as a fourth person on the conversation. Because Rex is really looking forward to actually interviewing Ty about King's X. Of course, King's X based, you know, most of their time in Texas and Pantera being a Texas band and Rex being from Texas. And he was really psyched about actually coming in and doing it. Unfortunately, it kind of like the few days before we were going to do it, that fell apart. So that we were a little bit bummed that we weren't able to have Rex bring that in because it would have been really cool to have his perspective as a longtime fan you know, right from the get-go with them, right from Texas. I thought it would be a unique perspective, and so did Richie. So a little disappointed we couldn't get Rex in on this. That would really have kicked us up a whole extra notch and made it even that much more of a special episode. But no matter what, how cool is it to sit down with an artist and talk about their catalog from beginning to end? So this is kind of a, a really rare opportunity for us to do this, and I'm hoping we actually have the opportunity to do this with more artists going forward. So I guess this one, as far as Focus on Metal listeners goes, it cuts three ways, right? Either you're a King's X fan and you're going to be all over this and loving every minute of it, or at least the albums you really like. If you're not a King's X fan and you have no interest, then you'll be going, I'll skip this one. And it's not the weekly episode, it's a special episode. So nothing lost there for you. And of course, the third one is if you're really not familiar with King's X, Hey, it might be a good discovery episode, and you might come away with a band that you want to dig into that catalog a little more, maybe download some songs, buy some albums, 
and see what's up with King's X. And, you know, we talked to Ty a little bit in the beginning, talk about a lot of the other things they do. One of the unique things about King's X, it's the same three guys that have always been in the band. And those three guys also go off and do all kinds of other different projects. They just have some amazing musical output. And Ty's done a lot of different things, including some of his own solo records. And you can get any of the stuff from Ty at uh, the website molkenmusic.com. That's M-O-L-K-E-N music.com. Head up there. You can see all the stuff that Ty's put out. Get your hands on that stuff. And of course, the drummer, Jerry Gaskill, has put out a solo album. He's currently working on a second one as well. So there's, you know, his stuff that he's doing. And then, of course, Doug Pinnock. A lot of people are familiar with Doug. And Doug is just doing stuff all over the place. Latest thing that Doug put out was from the band KXM, and that's with Doug Pinnock, with George Lynch, and with Ray Lugier from Korn. Great, really cool stuff. It's got that classic Doug Pinnock vocals on there. Great drums from Ray. And of course, the George Lynch guitar stamp all over the place on it. A really solid album. It's not, you know, full-out balls-to-the-wall Lynch mob or anything like that. It really does have some of the soulful sensibilities of Doug in there, and, you know, just mix that together with George and Ray. Really cool stuff. And you can pick that up at RatPackRecords.com. Our buddies over at Rat Pack. They even have some packages as well. These guys do all kinds of solo stuff. And then they come together and they just, again, boom, it's King's X. And they just really know how to do it well. So it's five minutes into this. I'm still yakking. Ty should be yakking at this point. I'm going to shut up and we're just going to cut right over to Richie, Ty, and myself going through the King's X studio album discography. So we hope you guys enjoy our special with Ty Tabor of King's X. We've got a great, great guest today, and I know Richie's been so looking forward to this, and that is uh, the one and only Ty Tabor from King's X. So good afternoon, Ty. How are we doing? I am doing great. Thanks so much. Awesome. Appreciate you having me on. Yeah, I've been looking forward to it. It's funny, I was... Uh, like about a week ago, I was sitting in a waiting room and I was reading uh, the latest edition of Vintage Guitar and I turned the page and there's Ty Tabor. And uh, so, of course, you've got the new, uh, the new Jelly Jam release out, correct? Uh, actually, it's a new solo album and I'm working on a Jelly Jam release for later this year that's not actually out yet. But that's what I'm in the middle of recording and working on right now. I was very surprised to see you in there. I was psyched. And of course, I'm a gearhead, so they went into all the, your, the gear and stuff, the latest stuff you were using. So great article for me. And uh, definitely, you know, guys, if you love Ty's tone and you've been lusting after it, you know, definitely go out and get that latest issue of uh, Vintage Guitars. Got the Beatles on the cover. Nice article about Ty in there and see everything that he's up to. But it's it's good to see that, uh, that you guys, as a band, the three of you just stay so amazingly active with all your different projects. <laughs> we we sort of have to. We'd go nuts if we didn't. Not all of us are just always dying to play and write music and record. And, you know, we're so driven. I think we'd go nuts if we didn't keep busy. Yeah. And, and to me, I think that's a really says a lot about you guys as well as musicians, because it does seem like that you have so much music, different kinds of music to get out and that you are as a band so willing to let each other just embrace whatever the heck it is you want to do and, and go for it. And I think that just speaks a lot for the three of you. And I think it says a lot to the fact that it's remained, you know, the same three guys with, you know, the exception of the rhythm guitarist in the very beginning, but the same three guys throughout the whole history of the band and how supportive you've been to each other. And that's, I think that's an incredible thing nowadays to see that in a band. Thanks, man. I, you know, uh, the older we get, the more we're realizing how unusual it really is uh, to, uh, you know, do this for a lifetime almost, you know, because we were 
basically kids, we started this, and uh, we're still still out there doing it, and very, very thankful that we get to, for sure. It's amazing. Just the, even the fact of, you know, when Jerry had the heart issues and the fact that you guys went ahead and you did that release, Burning Down Boston, which meant a lot to me. I've actually played the channel myself as well. I was psyched that it was a channel show that you did. But I mean, how many other bands would do that for one of their members? And it just to me, that just put you guys on a whole different level of of consideration in my eyes. Oh, well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. I think anybody would do that to any friend or person they love and care about if they, you know, had the opportunity and could. Yeah, yeah. So, like I said, you know, I'm, uh, Richie's sitting here. He's been patiently waiting. Like he's got, he's got a million and twelve questions. And um, you know, since we did talk about your long history and stuff, I think Richie wants to maybe start off by diving in a little bit to the kind of the beginning of King's X and where it all started. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Ty. Um, how did you end up joining the band originally? Um, well, originally, I moved to Springfield, Missouri, in uh, 1980, and. Uh, Jerry had moved there, I think, the year before, or maybe earlier. I think he was there the year before, possibly. And uh, Doug moved there sometime around the same time also. Um, Doug and Jerry moved there to play with a guy named Greg Bowles. Mm-hmm. Um, with, uh, actually, they ended up doing, they were, ended up being Phil Keggy's, Phil Keggy's band. They they moved down originally to try out for a band called Petra, which was Greg you know Greg Bowles was the lead singer of Petra, but that sort of didn't work out. And at the same time, Phil Keggy wanted to put a band together and tour, and Greg had to, you know Doug and Jerry, and Greg was part of that. So they ended up being in Keggy's band, and uh, they did a show at the college I was at at the end of uh, 1980, and. I was in another band that was playing the same show, and I was in the show that opened for the. Uh, I was in the band that opened for Phil Keggy band, mm-hmm. which Doug and, Doug and Jerry were playing in. So, uh, but what happened is right before the show, our drummer quit, and uh, we had two guitars. Me and, an, and another guy in the band was playing guitar, so I volunteered to play drums for the show just so we wouldn't have to cancel. And um, what happened is I didn't have a set of drums, so we show up to the gig and uh, Jerry is setting up his you know drums and getting them ready for the keggy show and so I walked up to him and said uh, hey man I'm in the band opening and I explained the situation I said do you mind if I play your drums I won't touch a thing won't change anything you know and uh, he was like very kind and gracious and allowed me to and that's how I met Jerry mm-hmm. um, so uh, this is becoming a long story but it Uh-oh. is a long story <laughs> uh, but uh, basically Jerry ended up because you know of the Greg Voles uh, connection, I was I started playing in a separate band with Greg Voles and a couple of other people that were friends of Jerry's also. So our paths started crossing, and uh, Jerry ended up playing drums in that band. So I started playing with Jerry and Greg Voles in another side thing at that time. And then because I was also playing in a band called the Tracy's Inn Band, which was my main band at the time. Um, we needed a drummer. That was the band that opened for Keggy. Well, Jerry ended up joining us and playing drums for our band uh, because he did a demo session with us that Greg Voles produced. And so me and Jerry uh, became friends from that point on. We started doing shows together. He was doing shows with Doug on the side with Keggy at the same time. Uh, Then one day Doug called me because he saw me play somewhere unrelated. And... uh, 
Jerry's wife, this was actually, you have to back up a little bit. This, okay, that's my story with Jerry. Okay, the story, <laughs> with, the story with Doug develops at the same beginning, but going a different direction. Um, what happened with Doug is uh, Doug was at a show I played, and he didn't know who I was, but I did a little solo at this little talent show thing, and he seemed to like it. So he started asking around, found out who I was. Um, Jerry's wife at the time looked my name up in the campus phone book, dialed the number, and handed it to Doug. And Doug was like, what? What? You know, and he didn't even know what to say. I go, hello. And Doug's like, hey, uh, hey Ty, you don't know me, but this is Doug. I play you know, with uh, Phil Kay. I said, yeah, man, I know exactly who you are. Just We just played with you guys and all this stuff. Anyway, so Doug says, hey, let's get together and jam. So I invite him over, and we start jamming in the dorm room, and, and we start jamming with one of the guys that was in the band with me and Jerry and Greg Bowles. So it was yet another connection. His name is Dave Gowdy, by the way. So this whole soup of a group of people that was playing together, we all started doing things separately and together, but we all knew each other and knew of each other and who we were playing with and all that stuff. So at one point during that, uh, still, uh, I believe, very end of 80, but real early on, uh, Doug called me up and said, hey, why don't me, you, and Jerry uh, play together? Uh, and we have this other friend who's playing with us, too, named um, named Dan McCollum. And, uh, and I said, sure. So I went over to Doug's house, and we literally sat up in, a, in his kitchen and we turned on the recorders pretty much from the first time we ever got together. And um, we just started laying down some stuff, started playing some of Doug's songs and stuff like that, learning them. And we were listening back to the recorder, and we were all kind of scratching our chins going, hmm, you know, this, this is kind of interesting. And uh, I think all of us, from the first second we played together, knew there was something really, really extra special going on and that we should keep doing this. And um, that's how it all started, right then and there, in Doug's kitchen, really, the first time we played together. Mm -hmm. Now, Ty, what different influence did all you guys bring into the, the band? Um, well, we all come from different regions of, of the U.S. that have different kind of basic influences, I think, in general. I know that's a stereotypical thing but it is generally true um doug was you know he was living in more of you know close to chicago and more of a uh that kind of vibe thing and he was really into getting into things like sly and the family stone and some some really great high energy funk and funk rock type stuff stuff that was ha happening then with really great vocals um at the same time me and jerry were you know, totally freaking out over the Beatles. And uh, Jerry also was freaking out on Dylan pretty much just as much. And uh, so those are the the main foundational elements because we, me and Jerry also love Sly and the Family Stone. And, uh, but the uh, truth is Doug wasn't that much into the Beatles. But when we got together and he started writing stuff and playing, it, he, the stuff he was writing sounded very Beatlish and, um, and it's because I think Sly and the Family Stone had such great vocals and harmonies and stuff. And and uh, so Doug found himself writing things very Beatlish, and he being the one in the band that really wasn't a fan back then. But uh, that's pretty much the foundation, the foundational elements. 
you know, there's some other things you can throw in there, quite a few others, but that, that would be the basic bricks, you know. Mm. So I, I think, if I remember correctly, too, Doug was also um, very much into Hendrix as well. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, he loved Hendrix. He loved, uh, but I mean, Doug loved every facet of the different eras of rock and roll as they came and then every innovator person and band, you know, Doug freaked out when he heard you too. And I'm talking way back in the early days when nobody knew who they were. They weren't selling any records. Yeah. Um, and nobody had any idea what that noise was about was how people <laughs> thought of them. And Doug got it. You know, yeah. Doug was like, this is the greatest thing I've ever heard. They're going to be the biggest thing in the earth. And, and he's always been that kind of guy gravitating to the next thing. The thing is, he gravitates to all these potentially great things. Right. And and usually one or two of them catch on and become that thing. But he's very perceptive and open to go into new places all the time. Mm. How did you get on Sam Taylor's radar then? How did how, when when did he actually meet you and see you guys play? Um, what happened is we were living in Springfield, Missouri, for the first several years. That's where we met. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're doing shows around there, and we're doing shows all over the Midwest. Toward by the time it got to be '84, uh, close to '85, we were we're actually building a pretty good name for ourselves and doing decent business for the first time ever in clubs around there, and. Uh, there was this uh, record company in Houston that um, heard us play and uh, was impressed with us. And they had this Christian artist, a guy named Morgan Cryer. And uh, they, Morgan was like this up and coming thing on their label that they really, you know, felt strongly about. And he was really about to hit. And they had had a couple of big hits like Petro, which was playing arenas at the time and uh, was very big. Um, well, this this record company was sort of like the, you know, Christian rock label company of the time that was becoming big. So they had this guy named Morgan Cryer, and they knew we weren't really that kind of thing. We weren't wanting to be on a Christian label or anything like that, but they knew they, they loved the band, and they wanted us, they, they asked us if we would work with Morgan as his band for a temporary time, and they would pay us. Um, they would pay us money to do it and help us pay off our bills because we, we had our own light system, our own PA, we had roadies, we had a heck of a show that we carried around, our own truck, everything. And so we had some debt. So they they paid off our debt to help to help Morgan out for a brief period of time. We actually went out and did some shows with him. We wrote some music for him for an album that was very successful for him. Um, and at the end of that time, the deal was um, if we put in that time for this company and did that for them, then they would do their best to bring in people or whoever they could think of and try their best to help shop us and help us get a, a regular record deal. You know, mm-hmm. we wanted to we wanted to deal with somebody like Atlantic. We really wanted to be on Atlantic. Um, so anyway, at the end of that time, that's they brought in some people. They brought in Jimmy Hotz at one point, who was working with Fleetwood Mac and some other people, and he was fun to work with. Um, but nothing really happened with those demos. We did some other demo stuff with them. They put us up in the studio. Really, go things were just going nowhere. And then they came across a guy named Sam Taylor who was working uh, with ZZ Top organization, and uh, somehow Sam had made himself known to them and. Uh, 
and and they told him about us and said, would you be willing to hear this band that we have that we really believe in? We really there's, believe there's something there, but they don't want to be on our label, uh, and so we can't really help them. Would you be willing to hear them? And, uh, and so Sam agreed. And um, so we just kind of had this uh, thing where we went to a rehearsal room and played all of our original songs for him, and, and uh, that was kind of how that thing started. Okay. And then, of course, you got to deal with uh, Megaforce Records. Yeah, that's kind of a long story, too, because it was, uh, it was uh, despite of our efforts that we got that deal. Because <laughs> uh, everything that we did ourselves and everything that Sam did as far as sending out, you know, packets to labels and stuff, everything we sent out got rejected. So everything that was within our own power that we tried was a failure. We didn't get a record deal. What happened is Doug against Sam's wishes because Sam told us not to let this music out to anyone before we had a record deal. Well, Sam, uh, well, Doug against Sam's wishes sent out the tape to a friend of ours who played drums for Amy Grant. And, um, and he asked Doug, well, are you familiar with a new label called Megaforce that's really starting to do things? And we had never heard of them. And so it was because of that, we sent something to Megaforce. And so Sam ended up sending this to Megaforce. Well, the story I heard uh, was, uh, you know, Marsha and John Zazula run Megaforce. And uh, apparently Marsha saw the package with Sam's name on it and had an old high school buddy named Sam Taylor. And she thought it was from him. So she opened it and ended up listening to the tape and being floored by the demo, and which was a, a demo we had done together with Sam uh, just recently. We did like four songs and went in and did it ourselves the way we wanted it to sound. And uh, this is the tape we sent them. Uh, well, Marsha fl- was floored by the tape, and she went to Johnny and played it for him. And, you know, Ed Trunk was there. They were, you know, upcoming, brand-new kind of label really starting to happen. And they took a chance on us. They, they, they flew us up to New York. Uh, got us a gig uh, and a, a showcase gig, came out to see us, and a whole lot of other labels ended up showing up, including Atlantic. Um, and uh, there were uh, Joey Ramone was right down front, right in front of me. I was as nervous as could be. He was just had his arms you know, crossed and just staring at me like he hated me, but he didn't move the whole show. He didn't budge. And later I found out he was floored and became a fan. He came to many more shows. Uh, but anyway, so we actually thought we had a horrible show. We had terrible monitors. Uh, Doug at one point got so mad at him, he kicked him over. We just felt like we just blew our one chance. We walked off, stormed off the stage like, you know, we just blew it. <laughs> and uh, our manager comes running in the, in the door and shuts the door. And he's got big eyes like, wow, that was great. And we're like, are you kidding he goes, you just wait. Everybody wants in this room. So he started letting people in one at a time. First person he let in was a guy named Jeff Rowland from uh, ICM, number one guy at the biggest booking agency in the world. He goes, I want you guys. Uh, next person they let in, you know, they, one after another, he keeps letting people in. And, you know, of course, Johnny Zazula comes in. He shuts the door, doesn't want to let anybody else. And he looks at us and he says, you're not leaving town until you sign a record deal with me. Wow. <laughs> that's what he said to us. So that's how we got signed to Megaforce. Okay. And we found out later the reason he did that is he was afraid some of the other labels were going to get to us first. And we didn't even know that. <laughs> 
Ty, can I ask you about the, the the demos or any of the tracks on the demos? Did they make it onto the, the debut album? Uh, no, but very close representations did. Um, I think the demos uh, were consisted of the very original version of Goldilocks, also the song Sometime on the first album. I think we may have had a version of the New Age, and I and Power of Love, possibly. Mm-hmm. If I remember correctly, we may have kept some of the guitars or something on it, but, but we recorded bass and drums, if I remember correctly, and all vocals. So uh, I don't think anything purely ended up like that. But there is something that from the original demo ended up on an album on the song Pleiades, oh. uh, which, which came out on Gretchen. Now, Pleiades was actually written way before the first album. And uh, but it didn't make it on a record until this, uh, Gretchen, and uh, the original demo had all this weird cacophony of noises at the end of the song, and we just couldn't replicate it in the studio. So I went home and grabbed my this old eight-track tape machine and brought the original thing down, and we ran it uh, slowed down to match the pitch of the album version, and and put that on the uh, on the album straight from a cassette. <laughs> I know. Sometimes you do get these things, right? I, I know. Years back, we did a uh, a song, one of my original bands, and at the, at the during the song, the producer had this idea of because we couldn't come up with a good solo, and he was like, "Well, I got this sound effects record of all these cartoon sounds." So, and it was kind of a lighthearted song. So he says, "Why don't we just string a bunch of these things together?" And he did it, and it actually ended up like matching perfectly to to the bar to the end of of that what it would be a solo section and uh, a few years ago one of the guys in the band wanted to maybe go back and revisit and re-record some of these songs and that was the one thing i'm like you know we can never reproduce that and we're gonna have to like there's no way i can do that and so you, you telling that story about having to bring that in just reminds me of some of these things you you do have from your past and now you have to like they're just these happy things that there's no no possible way you're ever going to recreate them right that's true and they're the most they're the most uh, um, amazing things in memory about doing those projects, like you say, because uh, I can remember while we were doing the Gretchen album, it was a lot of work. And uh, I, there were a lot of times we all were like, man, are we done yet today? And it, we still had a long way to go. And um, it was very, very hard work. But the thing I remember about it most are things like, you know, setting up mics all the way across the control room and hurling a broken cymbal into a wall to get just the right crash or, <laughs> or filling a bell up with water and hitting it with a mic stand or something to get the right tinkering sound while moving the water. You know, things that like that, we would, we would spend hours and hours on getting the right sound, but that was the fun stuff, you know, just creating things that were, you know, your own. There, there wasn't anything else. Like It wasn't a sample that someone else, you know, has. It was totally creative yeah it's true i mean that those that time period definitely was really fun for recording i can remember doing that and there was uh at one point my drummer was using had this old saw blade that we had found in the rehearsal facility and we had hung it from the ceiling and he kept using it as this kind of an oddball ride symbol 
And we got so used to hearing it in the song that we had to send somebody back to the rehearsal facility to get us that saw blade because there was no other way to duplicate it but to do that. And I, I kind of miss those days of those kind of oddball things. And when you hear stuff like what you just talked about, when like the guys from Judas Priest talk about things like dropping silverware on the floor to get the, the sound of the stomping robot feet and metal gods and stuff, I just, I really miss those kind of days of recording. And you know, there are people who do that for a living mm. every day, and that must be fun. Those guys in Hollywood that yeah, are doing all these arts. sound effects. Yeah, yeah and they're, they're throwing, you know, lettuce against the wall and whatever. You know, it's <laughs> crazy. Yeah, it uh, is amazing. So, I don't know, Richie, do you want to start in on some of the... Some yeah, of the yeah, sure. Well, we started at the beginning, yeah. Out of the Soil and Planet, in, released in 1988. <laughs> got on my my radar um mick wall the journalist from kerrang he had a tv show and um he reviewed two albums each week on the show and the first one was out of the silent planet and the second one was poisons open up and say ah so that'll tell you the time period that uh your your debut album was released into yeah um yeah. but the one thing i do remember is kerrang loved you guys absolutely loved you guys they put you on the cover um, I think you came over and played a, a couple of UK shows very early on in your career. You are correct. It was that Kerrang! cover that broke us in England, mm -hmm. for sure, because um, graciously they they put that fantastically supportive article and put us on the cover of the magazine right before we got to England. And uh, we had never played over there. They booked us at the Marquee, and we didn't know if there would be, you know, uh, nobody there or what we had no idea and uh, thanks to Kerrang it was a sold out show and mania just took off for us in England all of a sudden and they were 
completely responsible for it. Yeah, the English audience seemed to get you guys very, very early on. I do remember that. Yeah, yeah, we were <laughs> we were just scratching our heads. We were so used to playing all over America to a bunch of baffled looks and people getting up and leaving. And um, <laughs> honestly, I mean, that's what that's just basically what happened to us because nobody wanted to hear that. They wanted to hear, you know, pop hits so they could dance. I mean, we're throwing stuff at them. They're like, "What is this?" And they just leave. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, yeah. we go over to go over to England, and people just go. Ah. We were like, you know, the world just changed. You know, something is bizarre. They actually like us. <laughs> yeah, I think what was interesting about your stuff, and maybe what it was, is that the tones and everything were so sonically just dense and interwoven. But then underneath that, you just kind of had this, you know, this whole undercurrent of melody. And you add that with the vocal harmonies, and I think it was probably. For the you know for the American audience at that point that really like like you said wanted that simple pop song it was probably too much but I think that over in Europe where you see you know bands like the Beatles or even like Oasis you know they had that same kind of thing a dense sound but had the the sensibility and the harmonies and all that it was probably you were the perfect fit for that audience and for their musical sensibilities. Well, I have no idea if if you know if that's it but uh i'm thankful for whatever it is because um, they have always been so gracious to us uh, all over the uk the entire uk has always had big open arms to us and we're amazingly thankful for that we always uh know we can really look forward to those shows because people are always there packed london always sells out it's just so fun to play mm-hmm so so the songs for the debut album, um, did you write them separately and bring them in and then work on them, or did you actually jam and, and work on them in the studio? Yeah, uh, the way we did it originally, we did always write individually and bring it together. But anything brought into the band situation was with the understanding that, you know, we may play it the way you wrote it, we may tear it to shreds and rewrite it, but but get the basic idea from it, you know. Mm-hmm. So so you're always kind of scared <laughs> if you're if you really love a song and bring it to the band because I mean it happens for all of us. I'm, there there are songs that you know they got changed so much that I didn't recognize them anymore, and I was like, oh well. But then the fans, <laughs> but then the fans love it because yeah. it's it's that combination of everybody's input that none of us can do on our own and i'm sure that all of us uh experience exactly the same thing so we recognize the strength of a band we recognize the strength of you know three heads and different influences fighting for what they like so that it becomes an unusual soup that we can't do by ourselves so we we let it happen yeah and how did you track the the songs did you play them all together and then add the vocals harmonies later or or what way did you do it yeah, we always track live, and we even track live with vocal mics just to get cues and, you know, we all know where we're at and stuff. So we're just in there doing it, you know, mm-hmm. and that's always how it goes down. If we don't play it good together, it's not a good take. It doesn't matter if one person got something good. The only exception would be if maybe Jerry had the best take of his life on drums and all that has to happen is me fix the last note of the song, then we would fix it. But in general, it's we want the live basic track, you know, the way we really play. Okay. So we'll go on to uh, the Gretchen Goes to Nebraska album in 89. Thank you. 
I think that's widely heralded as probably our best album by a lot of the fans. Um, do you have any memories of recording that, that album that stand out to you? Like, I know you talked already about Pleiades, but the track I love on that is The Difference. Uh, the vocal harmonies on that, were was, was that a lot of work to actually to get that track done? Uh, actually, that one was pretty easy because we just, we we recorded it very closely to how it was written, so we had already kind of familiarized ourselves with the parts and that, what we're going to do when, when we uh, when we laid it down, so it just kind of went down. Okay. That one was that one was easy, yeah. Okay, and w- were they all new tracks written after the debut album? Well, I know you already said Pleiades was before that. No, there were there were there were some songs that were uh, maybe ideas that weren't finished yet while we were recording the first one. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes we'll have a song we intend to be on a record, like we intended Pleiades to be on the first one, and I'm sure that it wasn't the only one that didn't make it that ended up on Gretchen. Okay, but. Uh, but uh, what happens is we'll try it, and if the vibe isn't there, if we're just not feeling it, if it's just not magic, then it's not time for that song yet, and we put it aside. We don't we don't discredit the song. We just say we didn't get it yet. Okay. And uh, and then we'll revisit it when we're fresh again next time. And um, that's I'm sure we did that on some stuff. We did that all the way up to uh, I can remember on Ear Candy we were doing so-called new songs that were songs are parts of songs we wrote way before we had a record deal so we've always done that we don't ever throw away we revisit you know okay. wait wait for wait for it to feel right okay yeah so when you went from out of the silent planet into gretchen and gretchen seemed to have a kind of a a happier overall tone it seemed to be kind of a brighter tone to it and stuff. Now, was that a, an intentional thing or did that just end up where you guys were at at that point in, in kind of writing and recording? Um, I'll tell you the truth. I think it's because a few of the songs we decided to record not in drop D. The entire first album was in drop D hmm. and that was in unprecedented. That that at the time had never been done on a rock album. There was nobody using drop D as their whole sound. Uh, we did have a couple of songs on that record, actually. Now, uh, uh, Goldilocks and Sometime were regular tuning, but the in, but the whole darkness of that record was the drop tuning, the dark vibe. Yeah. Um, the the next record, we decided to tune back up for some of the more important songs, like Over My Head is regular tuning, mm-hmm. uh, Summerland's regular tuning, and both of those got a lot of attention. So. They are brighter sounding, more lively sounding, because they're tuned up out of the dirge mm. tuning. Uh, so I think it may just have something to do with that. Uh, we were coming back up on that record to regular tuning, which is brighter, happier sounding. You know? Yeah, could be. It's funny you say that, because, yeah, definitely on Silent Planet, Goldilocks is like my favorite track on that. And when I had gotten Gretchen, the first thing that I really zoned in on was Summerland as well. But no, and you you know you talk a lot about the vocal harmonies and the way you guys were recording that and stuff. And I know that's to me that's always been a hallmark of you guys. And whenever I've encouraged people to go see you, one of the things I always tell them is that you're going to see some incredible vocal harmonies that are done live, and they're just done you know heads and shoulders above probably most other bands that you would see live as well. Did that whole ability to harmonize with each other just come naturally, or did it take any kind of work on your part? No, it takes extreme work on yeah. our part um the harmonies being great never come easy 
And uh, we're hard on ourselves. We don't think they sound great. We're all, I cringe when I hear us sing. So <laughs> it's, a, it's a constant work. Yeah, absolutely. It's very difficult to pitch. You have so many different overtones in a live room bouncing back from the back wall. You know, you know all the different... You know, you have subs under the stage sometimes, which is the most incredibly bad situation for the performer you can have. Uh, you know, with low rumbled overtones, you know, undertones and overtones, just rumbling your mic stand and everything all night, and it and you've got to harmonize while ignoring these rumbling pitches, you know, from from the live venue that's going on. It's it's ridiculous uh, sometimes to even try to harmonize and. When we get it right, we feel very lucky. <laughs> yeah, it, it is. You guys just do it so amazing, and and you know I've heard people that say, "Oh, they must have backing tracks or all." It's and it's always an argument to convince people that there really are performers out there like you guys that do care and are professionals and do this, you know, and really know what you're doing. And so, like I said, to me, that's always been a hallmark of King's X is those vocal harmonies and the fact that you know what you hear on the album a lot of times is what you guys pull off live as well, and. Even though I expect it, every time I hear it, it still just amazes the crap out of me. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. And you are correct. We have never... This is something our band stands for. If you come see us play, you're going to see a true live show. Mm. Um, people don't do that anymore. They play the click tracks. They're, they're firing all kinds of background harmony samples, sounds that are on the album. People just don't play live anymore, and people don't realize that. Uh, King's X... The promise from us has always been it is live. There is not one sample, not one trigger, not one fake anything. And it's usually pretty obvious. <laughs> but but like you say, some people accuse us of, uh, of things, and uh, it's just not true. We have never used a sample live, ever. Yeah, and it's, it's amazing, too, because it's only the three of you, and the way that you guys have you know, with with the way your instruments, the kind of chord voices that you play, kind of the different bass player that Doug is. I mean, you guys make it sound like such an immense sound all the time as well through your entire recorded history. Because when you guys, you know, live, every time I see you, you kind of mix it up on errors too. And it is always such a huge sound that the three of you make. Thanks, man. We try to envelop as much tone between the bass, guitar, and drums as we possibly can in the sound spectrum. We try to make it a wide swath of noise. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously after after Gretchen, you guys were definitely on, I think, a, a lot more people's radar. So did that make for more pressure at all as far as when you, you know, go in for the next album at all? Uh, not yet, actually. The way, I mean, I can only speak from my, my perspective and it's different for Doug and Jerry because uh, Doug didn't enjoy doing Gretchen very much because it was extreme discipline and not fun for him. You know, he... He, it was grueling for him. He doesn't have fond memories of it. For me, it was like heaven because it was the ultimate experiment. Wouldn't you know? Take as much time as you want to do anything you want, and no rules. Uh, so you, we have totally different perspectives on everything. All of us were different guys, so I'll, I can only give mine. Yeah. For me, when we went to the next album, I was so gung ho to get back in and go for it again. It was just nothing but happiness, um, and I really enjoyed that record uh, doing it. And I think we were we had, we got that record uh, recorded and finished quite a bit faster than Gretchen, and I know that probably made Doug very happy too. Um, <laughs> but uh, it was 
uh, I mean, it was it was intense, hard, ridiculous, you know, round the clock work like normal. But we just prepared very hard going in, and we had been touring very hard, and we were ready. We felt we were on our game when we were going in for that record, as far as I was concerned. So I, it it was just gung ho, let's go, okay. and uh, on that on the next one, and it was a good positive experience, and things kept ramping up, getting bigger, bigger for us because. Uh, you know, Silent Planet didn't do too much. Gretchen put us on the map. Uh, the next album did well compared to Gretchen. And then the first two albums started selling. So uh, it was all still positive going uphill at this point on the third one for me. I was really enjoying it. Top Love album is uh, it's over an hour long. Um, were you, you guys conscious that it, like the the CD was now becoming the format to buy music on? Did that have any effect on the length of the album? Um, I don't believe so. I think it's just that we had an album finished, and Doug wrote this song called Faith, Hope, Love that happened to be this enormously long, you know, ridiculously long song. And and we all loved the song so much, we just said, and it was like the last second. I mean, last weekend, we're about to turn in the album. We're done. And we go, what the heck? Let's see if we can pull it off. So we recorded it and threw it on the record. That's the only reason it ended up being a long record. We loved that song and wanted to include it, but it wasn't originally intended to be on it. Okay. That's the first tour I actually, I've only actually seen you guys play once, Ty. Um, you're supporting ACDC in, in Dublin and Ireland. And... Um, you, you played It's Love, and I want to ask you about the song Moan Jam. It's got a really long guitar solo on it, like really long. And uh, like you, you just went wild on that. Like Was was that planned, or it's just the way the track ended up happening organically? Well, um, it's just how the song was written. Uh, I originally wrote this song in a, a, a hotel room, I think, on tour, and I didn't have drums to put a, a drum beat down. So my original demo version is me popping my hands on a uh, styrofoam cooler going, and then I started playing to that. And, and the only reason I think I was doing that was I had heard some music that was high energy with a high beat. And, and so I just tapped out a high beat on a high styrofoam thing and literally just had a cassette recorder. And 
I just started playing to it, not even knowing what was I was going to play. And literally, that's just what came out first time down. I didn't really write it. I just played that. That's what came out. And I left the and because it was so easy and what came out, I just said, "Well, this would be a good jam section." So I just you know held the chord for forever on the tape and just was you know able to practice guitar to it and stuff. And that's how it was written. Okay. And when it was when it when we originally started playing it, because it had no lyrics. Uh, the reason it's called Moan Jam is because Doug said, hey, let's play this live. And we were like, well, it needs vocals. And Doug goes, I'll just moan to it. <laughs> and so we went out. And so the first few times we did it, he's just out there, mm, 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 you know, just moaning to the song where the, where the lyrics are. There were no lyrics. And that's why it's called the Moan Jam. <laughs> and uh, when we decided to put it on record, uh, we just said, hey, man, write some lyrics. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the other track on the album I love is uh, Legal Kill, the very last track. I love the guitar tone on that, the guitar sound. It's, oh, cool. It's, it's really, it's just re- comes across really well on the album. Uh, what did you use for that track? It's actually two guitars played at the same time with a little bit different stringing and different tuning. tuning. Okay. Um, there's um, a normal six-string guitar in a, I think I'm using like an open G tuning, you know, with normal, you know, the normal six strings on the guitar. And then I picked up another guitar and I tuned it or strung it with what's called Nashville tuning. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's basically only the high strings of a 12 string guitar. So if you don't have a 12 string, you can play that guitar along with your regular six string and it covers all the strings of a 12 string um, and that's what I did I faked a 12 string it's two guitars faking a 12 string sound okay mm, yeah now it's interesting since you know Richie talked about the guitar tone and stuff and I'm obviously I'm a gear guy and I'm definitely in that time period I was one of those people that was scratching his head going how the hell is Ty getting the sound that he's getting and and I know that since then there's been you know one of the things was, of course, the the Lab Series amp, which you were st- you were still using the Lab Series at that point, correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I still use them on things. Actually, I've used it on the last Jelly Jam and my latest solo, so I'm still using them. Yeah, and and it's funny because you know with the Lab Series, that was also one of the things that um, uh, that was a thing that Billy Gibbons was using a lot as well. So it's kind of another coveted tone and another guy using a Lab Series, and and not really a a common amp. And then the other thing is that at that point, were you still using the Elite Strat? Yeah, I yeah. used the Elite all the way up until the Dogman album. Okay. I have an 83 Strat as well, but it's a Pro Series. And, and I was thinking, well, geez, I've got the 83 Strat. Ty's got the 83 Strat. I'm still not getting the same tone. But of course, the the Pro, which is it doesn't have that magical preamp in it that your Elite has as well. Now, if I'm correct, you then took that preamp and you made a rack version of that same preamp yeah i i put those into a preamp or had someone do it for me more correctly because i i don't do much wiring or didn't back then and uh but i wanted to have it in a rack mount uh so that i could put other guitars and other pickups through it and uh the reason being the strat elite was really noisy Hmm. and picked up all kinds of radio signal and stuff like that so i um found myself in you know certain clubs and certain situations where it was almost impossible to use the guitar through the lab because lab is also noisy and the noise would be as loud as the actual signal of the tone of the guitar which is just stupid so at one point it was almost shutting down shows and i had to start trying some other things so i tried a zion 
and the Zion got really close to the, the original sound if I ran it through that preamp. So I ended up doing that because it was quieter and, and started moving on to different guitars at that time. But that's why I did it. I think a lot of the strats at that time period, they were just really noticeably noisy. That was like my 83 strat was always my backup guitar. And definitely if we would go into a club and I would see a ton of neon like beer signs and stuff, it was like, okay, I no longer have a backup guitar tonight because it's going to pick up everything in this room. And I think that that's, yeah, that whole time period with a lot of vendor products then, they were just very noisy for those environments. Yeah. Yeah. And they're, they're still plenty of noisy environments left out there too um, oh, yeah. so it's, it's still a real problem um, and if you go to Europe you can find you know when you, you're changing your you're uh, you know going from 50 hertz to 60 hertz back and forth between Europe and America and doing power conditioning and things like that you end up with even worse noise problems so it's crazy <laughs> okay Ty can I, can I just ask you about your experiences on that ACDC tour um, because for me, anyway, like I saw, I saw the tour. Um, your kind of music and the ACDC's kind of music is, you know, this is vastly different. And the ACDC crowd are very uh, loyal about their band's music. Um, do you remember having any difficulties playing in any of the shows? Any of the any of the crowds trying to win them over? <laughs> oh no, they were all there to see us. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, when we did ACDC tour, it was one of the greatest times we ever had and one of the most challenging times we've ever had. Uh, first and foremost, the guys in ACDC were awesome to us. They were so cool, so nice, so generous. Um, they hung out with us. They took us to eat. They knew us by name before we even met. I mean, total classy gentlemen. It was really a, a pleasure for us to have the privilege of getting to do that tour with them. And it really helped our band, you know, getting that exposure in Europe and America, mm -hmm. despite uh, the challenges. So it was, first of all, I'm very, very thankful for it. It was amazing. So any of the negative, I say, is just not a complaint. It's just part of life, what happened. We're very thankful we did it. Yeah. Did so anyway, we, we did do two months in the U.S. that went really great, you know, super amazing crowd, super responses. The, our record started really taking off. We were like, we're flying high. And we and and so we we go to do the two months in Europe, and the difference between America and Europe is uh, we were announced on the tour in America, and it, and at least there were some Kings X fans at the shows every night, you know, with wearing Kings X shirts and all that stuff and hanging out at the bus. Well, we get over to Europe, we find out that you know ACDC is so big in Europe that they don't even have to announce who's on the tour or anything. They go ahead and sell the tickets before anybody is even on the tour, and they sell out. So by the time we were announced, it was, had long since been totally sold out. So we, we knew we were going to be in front of a crowd where not a single person knew who we were and just probably wanted us to hurry up and get off the stage. So we found ourselves exactly in that situation. <laughs> uh, I mean, we'd get out there and literally there'd be, I mean, we'd be in arenas the size we'd never seen before, much less played, you know, in Europe, and they'd be sold out. And the whole audience at first might have their back turned to us, at least on the entire floor, and screaming, Angus, Angus, so loud that they want to overcome our volume. <laughs> and uh, so, I mean, it was, and we had things were being thrown at us, you know, coins were being thrown at us, lighters, boots, toilet plungers. Uh, <laughs> no, that's not a joke, literally. Uh, all kinds of stuff thrown at us. Um, 
and people were getting hurt. You know, I remember I got a coin that hit me in the finger in the middle of a solo, and I had a swollen finger for days, and oh, wow. had to, had to play without that finger. Wow. And uh, I mean, we're just getting pelted and stuff, and spit on, and all kinds of junk. And uh, but that's what would happen the first one or two songs every single night. And so every night, it was the hardest thing on earth for us to step out on that stage because uh, we knew what was coming. And I mean, the first few shows, it was almost enough to say, let's just go home. We're going to get killed, you know. And uh, I remember some of the guys in ACDC saying to us, guys, you're doing better than anybody ever has. Keep it up. We promise you. We promise you you're doing great. And, and so we said, okay, well, hang in there. And uh, sure enough, you know, night after night, the same thing every night. But what started happening is by two or three songs in, and the word started spreading, and our videos started going up the charts, and our records started selling. Um, all of a sudden, two or three songs in, these haters started turning around, and uh, we started doing tactics to pull them back in. We just figured, okay, if this is, the, this is what we're going to face every night, people who get off on whatever humiliation they could give the opening band, we're going to have to deal with this somehow, so let's see if we can turn it on them somehow. So, what I started doing is, <clears throat> and Doug also if somebody threw something at us, we used it and threw it back at them. So uh, there was one night, you know, first song, whatever, I, we were coming out, I'm getting ready to do my solo, somebody hurls a lighter at me, it hits me right in the chest, and I luckily, like, you know, grab it and uh, light it and play the solo with my left hand alone with looking like I was lighting my strings with it. And I actually had it, a, you know, an inch or so off the strings. And when I finished the solo... I took it and threw it as hard as I could right back out at the dude, and the crowd fought over it. And we and I immediately knew what we had to do. Yeah, um, I could. And, and Doug too. And we started getting this way of turning this around. And uh, Doug would like sing an entire song. Like for instance, if if there was one person in the crowd left that was like third row back with their back turned, Doug would get away from the mic, walk to the front of the stage, and sing the song straight at that person until everybody in the arena is cheering at it until the, finally the person turns around and realizes what's going on. He was literally doing things like that and, and totally won the crowd over so that by the end of the tour, like I said, it was something that we learned to go, this is going to be the biggest battle of our life to make this happen every single night, but let's do it. Okay. And that's exactly what happened. And yeah. it turned out to be a big break for us because we couldn't sell tickets in Germany before that. We couldn't tour Germany. We couldn't get a gig there. We could sell out all over the UK and couldn't get a gig in Germany. Yeah. And after that tour, everything changed. So it was really good for us. Yeah, so we'll go on to the next album, the self-titled one in 92. <laughs>
Lost in Germany, was that inspired by the, the lyrics on that? Anything to do with that tour? It did. Uh, it, you know, the first couple of weeks were so dark of that, you know, just brutal beat down every night before we decided to change our attitudes that I, I had to write several things. I wrote Black Flag about that. I wrote Lost in Germany about that. Um, and probably most anything I wrote on that album actually came from some of that experience, good and bad. So, uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay. Uh, the track I want to ask you about on that, uh, the big picture, the, w- the one thing I always wanted, wondered was, uh, why, is the mu- why is there muffled vocals in the chorus? Um, it's very clean in, in the verses, and then when it comes to the chorus, when, when Doug is singing on it, it's kind of distorted. Uh-huh. Yeah. Are you, are, are you wondering what he's saying? Not what he's saying, but why, did you, why, why, why was it done that way? Uh, probably because Doug wanted to. Okay. Um, it would <laughs> probably be that simple. Um, okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know, I know Doug doesn't look... For, I've read in interviews that that album and maybe Fate of Love, and you, you obviously brought up Gretchen, that he wasn't really happy with the, the, the process of recording those. Um, was the self-titled album, was it, did you have the same feeling as the Fate Hope Love album that you, you loved recording that one as well, or, or were you f- falling more into line with how Doug was feeling? I started changing my opinion on the fourth album. When, when we got to the fourth album, it felt to me like we had abandoned what got us here. We had, uh, I mean, because the way we came up with Out of the Silent Planet was not trying to come up with Out of the Silent Planet. Mm. And that's the whole secret. That's the whole key. You can't force the uh, the new thing it new things happen when you're pure and just trying to be free and we were finding ourselves doing things and thinking it needs to sound this way because this is what king jack sounds like and i was like thinking uh, that's crap uh king jack doesn't have a sound we have albums uh the way those albums happened was by being free, not by trying to imitate ourselves and, and mold this statue of what we think that is. And that's what we started doing, started second guessing, started getting the same tones for the sake of getting the same tones instead of being free enough to go, well, what if this would have been better? Mm-hmm. And uh, Which is what we did the first three albums. The first three albums don't sound alike, even though they're similar and a lot of the, they were using the same amps and stuff, but they don't sound alike. The guitar tone between the first album and the second album is extremely different if you put them on side by side and critically listen. Right. But people don't really think about that. It's just more about the vibe. Um, and that's what I mean. I, the, we were losing the vibe. We were becoming imitations of ourselves instead of being free to be let whatever that vibe is happen. And that's what I found on the fourth album. And I started being unhappy. You know, I started thinking, this is crap, you know. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you talk about that, and I think a lot of artists do suffer through that, right? I mean, that was one of the, the you know, Peter Frampton's misery is the same thing, where after Alive blew up, he spent all those years trying to write, you know, songs that were popular like Alive, instead of stepping back and realizing everything just happened because I wasn't thinking about having to do anything in particular. I just did it. And I think it, it took him a lot longer than it took you guys to realize that, you weren't having fun and this wasn't working anymore. So, uh, you know, I think at least as a band, you guys were a lot more, I think, together and, and realizing, wait a minute, we need to step back and be King's X again and not what everyone's expectations of King's X are. Well, I'm not sure that everyone did find themselves there. I know that I found myself there. Mm. And uh, 
But I, I honestly would have to ask Doug and Jerry how they felt about it. They may have felt the same. I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, but I do know that things started changing after that. Uh, you know, so we obviously must have been all on the same page. Yeah. Yeah, and of course, the next album with Dogman. Taylor was uh, out of the picture and you got Brendan O'Brien in, in to produce. Um, was he the only producer you wanted for that record or was there anybody else that you tried to get? Well, Brendan was like the producer in the world, the dream producer, you know, that everybody out there, no matter how big or small you were at that moment, he was number one. He was the guy. Mm-hmm. He was the guy with everything he did was becoming platinum he was he was mixing people like Aerosmith and the Stones while recording Pearl Jam and Stone Temple Pilots and everything. He was current and history all at once, the big producer for everybody. So he was the only guy. And the fact is, we never thought we had a chance in all the universe to do an album with him. He He asked to do the album with us. He went to Atlantic and said... You know, I've done pretty much everybody I've ever wanted to do. I would really love to do an album with King's X. Will you pass that to them? And, uh, you know, they called us up, and we were like, oh, no, we definitely don't want to work with him. <laughs> we were freaking. So uh, we were like, uh, you know, are you kidding? We, we can't. We don't have the money. And they were like, we'll make it work. We'll make it work. And they did. Okay. Now, did he have, um, you know, sonically, did he have a big stamp on that? Or was that really kind of what you guys came up with? Because it's definitely a, I love that album, and I, I just love all the sounds on it and, and everything that was there. And I've always kind of been curious when you, you see a band go from an album like your self-titled and you move into Dogman, and, and it is sonically such a different sounding album. Did he play a lot into that, or, or did, was it really what you guys were bringing to the table? Um, I think the easiest way to explain that is with, uh, and this is going to sound so ridiculous, like I'm peddling to sell things, uh, but the truth is we put out a demo on purpose. We put out a demo that we sell online of the demos we made uh, before we had a producer on that album, uh, just to show the difference between what the original is and the album. Mm. And um, 
uh, the vibe wise, we were already there. We had already changed our sounds. I had already changed amps, guitars, everything. We were going for something totally different. We were tuning down to B, tuning down to C, doing things we had never heard anybody else do before. And we had already gone there. But what you hear when you hear the real album after Brendan got a hold of it are just these little touches and a couple of songs that make a song go from being okay to being very good, which shows his genius. And the overall Brendan O'Brien tone and sound of all of his productions, which no one seems to be able to replicate. Mm-hmm. He just, you know, he is who he is and puts his magic on it. And, you know, I don't know how to do that, you know. <laughs> So you had a you had a cover of Manic Depression on the album, a live live track. Why put why why did you decide to put that on this record? Probably it was just a uh, you know a last minute. And to be honest, everything ends up being something not so grueled over or thought too heavily over. The way things like that end up on a record usually are. Uh, you know, sitting around one afternoon when you just finished something hard and you're not sure where to go next, or you're maybe beginning to wrap up the album, but you think, well, is there anything else we want to try? And, and you know, and somebody goes, well, let's play Manic Depression live and record it, see what it sounds like, and just go do it, and with no thought of whether it's going to be on a record or not. Um, and that's that's the way most things happen. I mean, like the long ending on. Uh, uh, born to be loved that's so ridiculous with all these stops and starts and it just think you're going to think it's going to end several times before it does and it just never stops endings like that the reason they end up on records usually is because it makes us laugh so hard um if if it's something that seems completely ridiculous to the point of it's hard for us to actually pull it off to, because we're laughing then I can guarantee you it stays on the record. And there's a, there's a whole lot of that on King's X Records where we're doing things that just make us crack up, you know. Uh, and, and it's usually that kind of lighthearted nature for almost anything that ends up on a record. Um, it's always a fluke. It's always a last-minute suggestion. It's always just a, an afterthought, these little things that end up coloring everything. It's... It's it's never drawn out ahead of time, you know. It's interesting when you you talk to you know an artist as big as you, and you talk about these things just kind of being these quick happenstances, last minute things, and and you think, okay, so then kind of my recording career isn't that odd because I can I can remember like one of the the ones we did, and I we were scheduled to go in the studio, and we had figured out like ten tracks, we'd vetted out live, people liked, and everything, and like a week before we went in, I came up with this new track in rehearsal, and when the first time we went in. To record everyone else in the band was like well let's go do that song and i was like you silly bastards we've done this like twice at rehearsal it's great it's great and and it's just like this last minute like all right whatever we'll we'll put it on so it is interesting you know to hear someone like you kind of have the same thing and sometimes those are the most fun things to do i think on albums well it keeps it fun that's what keeps it fun if if, uh, if i knew exactly today what I'm going to record, like, and, and, and nothing against people who have the discipline for this kind of organization because it's impressive and people get more done this way. But for me, if I had a list that said at 10 o'clock, you're doing the solo on this album at uh, 12, you're going over to so-and-so studio to sing harmonies with so-and-so on this, you know what I mean? That whole thing, that scheduled thing, I'd be worthless. (laughs) I I can't, I cannot operate that way. Uh, And I think Doug is that times 10. Uh, and Jerry too, 
we all are expressive. We don't want to read music. We don't want to think. We want to feel. We want to go to the other place, you know, where whether it's right or wrong, because there is no right or wrong. Right. And uh, that's where we come from. So it all has to be spontaneous life, not drudgery, uh, you know, work. Mm-hmm. If it's work, we go home, you know. <laughs> Because we'd all rather do some other kind of work we could count on and have a regular schedule if we're going to work. Right. We don't yeah. work work. You know, yeah. Nobody wants your music to be that. You want your music to be life. You know, you want to love it. Yeah. Okay. So we're going to um, what my personal favorite in the catalog toy is uh, Ear Candy. Great. First time I picked it up, I said, "Oh, the haircuts are in." <laughs> yeah, brighter packaging. Um, I think you know you'd Aaron Lanny producing it, and I, I, I didn't, I had no idea who he was at the time. So, can you tell us how you got him in to produce that record? I think it was uh, just because he had had something he was currently working on that I don't remember what it was right now, but a Canadian band that we thought sounded really great, and uh, he expressed interest in us also, and. He had had some, you know, success in the past. Had some current success at the moment, and we were very happy. Any anybody wanted to work with us, you know, because mm-hmm. uh, you know we don't really think anybody wants to work with us. We we very different and unusual, and people don't know what to do with us. So, you know, anybody who does want to step up and and work with us, we're happy about. And Arnold, of course, was, you know, he is uh, respected and has a great past. And, so we thought he would bring energy in a different way to that record because we were kind of delving into some old songs that we were resurrecting from when we were younger that had a different life to them and thought he'd probably be really good for that. Yeah, it's a more varied record, I think, than, than Dogman. 
Um, it's a lot more, you know, diff- there's more different styles, I think, on it overall. Yeah, that's um, true. The track I absolutely love on this, and if, if it, I think if it had gone on the radio at all and got some airplay, Mississippi Moon, I think, is a fantastic song. I'll tell you, yeah, we actually were counting on that one. It was going to be the first single and first video. And, um, uh, but in, in retrospect, uh, timing wise, uh, we, we, we probably had a lot to do with why that didn't end up coming out because we were expressing unhappiness about a few things with, at Atlantic to our manager about them beginning to pressure us to have hits, write, write radio songs and things, something that no one had ever said to us before. And, uh, and our manager at the time was kind of pressuring us with that, saying that was, you know, coming from Atlantic. And, uh, so during that time, we were, we were feeling, I was feeling kind of lost, not quite sure what to do and everything. So it was, the, it was a, a strange album, uh, in a lot of ways. And the last time I ever let myself feel that way, because I, I realized I'm in control of letting myself feel that way. So it was my own fault. I, I did that, but I felt a lot of pressure that record uh, to to not necessarily be free to be who we are. We instead started looking at songs we had written that might be more of a hit. And we'd never done that before. We didn't want to. We didn't think of albums as a collection of singles. We thought of albums as albums, mm-hmm. and that album is a collection of singles, sort of. There's a couple of exceptions, just because we have to. You know, uh, I would have probably thrown a fit if we didn't do something to mess it up a little but but uh that song was i mean that album was that that's what it was and uh i i don't ever listen to that record even though it was kind of fun making it but i don't ever listen to it just because i feel bad about it you know? yeah was that also that whole kind of mentality and, and the pressure from the management and the label is that also kind of the switch between the very dark cover off of dog man and to all of a sudden like probably the brightest and most vibrant color album artwork that you've ever had does that kind of play into that as well actually the only reason that album is that is we sent the album to the artist who oh man people are going to absolutely kill me for blanking on his name we got you covered ty that was the psychedelic poster artist alton kelly who besides the stuff that ty goes on to talk about he's also the guy who designed the whole scarab beetle and wings logo for all those classic journey albums he did really cool Grateful Dead stuff and all kinds of really popular, famous artwork. He's a hugely popular artist, and please forgive me for blanking. We sent him the music and just said, do what you want. And that's what he sent back, and and uh, we just said, killer, let's go. Mm-hmm. You had the Greatest Hits album in uh, in 97. Now, there was three new studio tracks on that. Were they recorded especially for that? Um... I think that we just had gone in the studio to do some songs for the fun of it with the possibility of maybe adding them to something like that. I, I'm not sure that when we actually recorded the songs that we knew they were going to be on that or not. I think we may have had a vague idea that we it'd be a good idea to have some bonus tracks recorded for things yeah. in general. Uh, so uh, I'm not sure... Uh, yeah, don't really remember exactly if we knew for sure. Did you have any say in picking the tracks on, on that, or did you just leave it oh. to the label, just do it? No, we all choose the tracks on every album, always. We don't ever let labels have anything to do with that. Um, okay, because sometimes you hear of bands when, when the, the greatest hits albums come out that they have nothing to do with the 
the picking of the tracks on them? Well, basically, uh, the way it went down is they probably came out with came up with the the original idea and suggestions, and then we threw in well take this out and put this one in instead or whatever and then you know came to an agreement but we always have the final say luckily as the artist on anything has our name on it or, or we just don't put it out you know? mm. yeah it always cracks me up when i think back to that best of album is that there was this multi-volume compilation called absolute hair metal that had been put out and they chose sally off of that and my first thing was i've never ever thought of king's x ever being a hair metal band ever like that would be the last thing i would think of describing you and then i'm thinking of if you were going to pick a king's x track why would you be picking a new track off of the greatest hits album instead of anything else from your recorded work so whenever whenever i think of that of that best album that's what always cracks me up and is just thinking about that whole compilation thing and how these like how did all of that come about but uh it was, I think, pretty much overall a pretty decent compilation, I think. Uh, you know, the best of album was. Thanks. I, I, it's, for me, it's hard to do a best of because um, one thing I realize is that each individual person out there on any one of these albums, if they list the albums in the order of their favorite from beginning to end, mm. what I find is that the answer is so incredibly varied rather than some general consensus that it makes it very difficult for us uh, when it comes to that kind of thing because um, my least favorite things are other people's favorite things. And like I said, I, I mean, even recently I was involved in something where there was a song on one on my solo record that everybody that I played it for was totally like saying, this is the song and everything. I put the album out. Nobody is mentioning that song. <laughs> They're mentioning all the ones that I thought were lesser or, you know, weren't one that I thought would would be a favorite and so it King's X fans are very much that way. I find out it's it's I they're impossible to predict. So it, it we pull out the most uh you know un radio played song or whatever from the least selling album. It doesn't matter what we play or pull out people still sing the songs and we we can't believe that so yeah. lucky for us they they like a lot of of it that we didn't think they would yeah i think in that regard i think you guys are very similar to dream theater would it be the same thing if dream theater put out a best of there'd be massive online forum arguments about whether or not that was the best of because again same kind of a body of work and even you know what might be one guy in the bands you know john may like one song and mike would argue to the death that no this other song was the best so i, I think you guys are very much on par with that with the varied body of work and the stuff that you do and what people really consider to be best of as opposed to you know, like a poison where it's just like, oh, well, the best of is all the crap they played on the radio, you know, put it on an album right. and ship it. Right. That's true. Yeah, we didn't have that. Um, we didn't have that situation because we had very few that were on the radio. So those were quick picks. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, Ty, in around 97, was that when you, you built your studio that you recorded a uh, tape head on?
yeah, I, I actually put, started putting it together when I started recording Naomi Solar Pumpkin, which was my first solo record. Okay. Partial, some of those songs were re-recorded and put out on my first Metal Blade solo album, which was Moonflower Lane, but that studio I put together for that reason, yes. Okay, so the Tapehead record, you ended up producing that. Um, was that an easy decision to make, or did you guys, you know, did you try and get outside producers there and just figured, okay, we'll, we'll do it ourselves, we're able to do it at this stage? I, you know, I don't remember exactly who brought it up first, um, but I do remember us all feeling we were definitely on the same page and that we wanted to see what what would we come up with if it was just us, you know, because we have always had somebody there, you know, a fourth opinion, uh, a fourth nudge, you know, on everything we'd ever done. And yeah. We just said, you know, what would it be if we do it ourselves? Let's, 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 let's find out. And yeah. uh, we started out at Doug's place, did a lot of it at his place, did most of it at his place, actually. And, mm-hmm. uh, and I produced it, and I think may have mixed it over at my place. I don't remember. I think so. Yeah, so is that one of the first records where you actually wrote t- the songs together rather than brought them in separately? Yeah, I think so. That 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 album was that way to some extent, even though we did bring in some songs too. I think we brought in a couple, but yeah, for the most part, that one was we wrote songs together. Yeah. We had never done that before. Same thing on, uh, and more so on um, the next couple of albums. Yeah. When we did Bulbous and Manic Moonlight both, we did them the same way. We did them where we wrote everything on the spot in the studio, having no idea what it was going to be. Um, Bulbous, I think we did most of it over at Doug's place too, and then mixed at my place. we did completely at my place.
of those were our own personal ex- experiments, which still to this day we do not apologize for. We know that there are a lot of uh, fans that did not get it, uh, even flat out hated those records. But I still believe they were something we really needed to do and that um, we gained so many new fans uh, with those records, uh, it was ridiculous. And all of a sudden, it kind of flavored our audience with a a different mix of audience for the first time ever from that point on, which continues to this day. And those albums over time have become two that uh, a lot of people come out and point to us all the time as favorites now. So when they first came out, because they were so different, there were some haters among the real pure King's X fans, but lucky for us, a lot of other people gave it uh, uh, an open ear, and then eventually King's X fans did too, and started coming back to it and saying, uh, you know, we just didn't live with it long enough, and now we, we get it or whatever. And there are some that will always hate them, and that's cool too, because they are different. They're not the same thing. Yeah, yeah, definitely. They're like Manic Moonlight for me is the one that was, where it's got kind of more of that electronica edge to it. And I remember the first time I heard it, I was like, what are they doing? What's what's going on? And after a while, it, it was like, all right, I'm I'm starting to get into this, and and you start to see that it's it's all really still there, just a kind of a different presentation, and there's still a lot to be said. And and really, I mean, the same thing happened to me when the first time I heard uh, uh, "Out of the Crystal Planet" by Satriani, where it was that still kind of like drumming to the grid and not the Campatelli groove. And same thing, it was just like ah, uh, it just kind of sounded. In that case, that one sounded very cold to me. But now that's actually one of those ones that I love to go back and listen to. And and so yeah, I can see where. There's definitely going to be that split of people that initially are going, oh, different, bad. But it is good that, like you said, people have given it enough time and they've grown on it and start to appreciate those albums for what they really are. Yeah, I, I know that we enjoyed doing them. We had fun in the studio together, and we have good positive memories on those. Mm-hmm. And we like we like those records. I can actually put those on, believe it or not, and I can't <laughs> listen to a lot of our stuff. <laughs> Yeah, we, we, we spoke to Jerry before, and he said the Bulbous record out of the whole catalog is his favorite. Excellent. I'm glad to hear that. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so then we go on to the Black Lake Sunday album, and when that came out, I said, what are they doing rec- re- recording all these tracks that they wrote before out of the Silent Planet? And I, th- I think a lot of the fans probably thought, thought the same way, that, you, you know, a band that can... for One, you, you actually you know, you actually did it. And secondly, that the record company allowed you to do it because, you know, a lot, a lot of bands get a chance to actually do something like that. Well, it was something that had been a long time coming because remember earlier I said uh, in the, uh, I think we talked about this earlier, the earlier years um, when we started to build up a, a, quite a following in the Midwest right before we moved to Houston, um, we we're doing a lot of songs that people were yelling for every night. And, and we had these people in every town yelling for these same songs. Uh, one of them is the song Johnny on that record. Mm-hmm. Another one is finished. Uh, the lock. Uh, uh, there's so many of them that people used to scream for. And, uh, so that we knew they were their favorite songs among all those old songs we wrote. So, you know, over the years, we, uh, you know, we we started putting out these albums. We became King's X, but all these other people that knew us the seven years before that, uh, before the first King's X album, 
uh, we would run into them in these cities, and they're still out there in the in 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 a significant number, and they would constantly say to us, "When are you going to put Johnny on an album? When are you going to do you know this or that?" And uh, you know, that's still my favorite song you guys ever did. Nobody's ever heard it, and we just heard that for so long that we just decided, you know, it wouldn't hurt. It's not going to kill us to yeah. put those songs out if we explain to people that's what it is we'll just put them out you know it doesn't mean we, we're stopping writing new songs it'll just be kind of a special project and that's kind of how we did it yeah did, did, did the tracks change much when you recorded from when the time you actually you know wrote them to when you actually recorded them there were a couple of lyrical changes just for the sake of flat out embarrassment but, uh, <laughs> but musically we tried to honor the way they were written and do it the way it was written whether we felt cheesy or not it was this is how they were written this is not king's x now this is what this is so we did it that way yeah and the, the competition for the cover artwork whose idea was that uh i think that may have been my idea i don't okay. I, I don't remember for sure but i think that was my idea yeah i, was, I thought that was a nice touch when i actually got it that you know to get the, one of the fans could actually get uh the album cover. Yeah, that was cool. That was cool. That was fun. Very fun for us because there was a lot of great submissions. It was very cool. I should do that again on solo stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I must get. I get my paintbrush out, Ty. <laughs> <laughs> so the next, the next album was um, Ogre Tones. You got Michael Wagner, who's a you know famous producer, in to do that. Um, I think I believe he was a huge fan of the band. Anyway, is that correct? Um, I know that he knew of us and that certainly wanted to work with us. I'm not sure how big a fan or not he was, to be honest, because I never asked him. But um, but I know that from the first instant that we met him, it was just just right away we got on. Michael is just the coolest guy on this earth to record with. I can't imagine somebody cooler to work with and more fun to work with. He is just a pleasure. He's he's one of the greatest uh, you know, sound producer engineers on the earth with a with a wall of platinum to prove it from everybody you've ever heard of. And on top of it, one of the most genuinely friendly just kind human beings with some of the most funny stories you'll ever hear in your life. He he was in the military in Germany, and some of the stuff he told me that he did back then, I, I swear the guy needs to write a book. It's absolutely <laughs> off the chart hilarious. 
<laughs> Dude is crazy. Totally crazy. I love him. Oh, that then that answers my question. I was going to ask about you know how was it to go and record in uh, at Wireworld Studios, kind of being in a, a kind of a different environment. But obviously, you just kind of summed it up with you know how great he is. So I'm sure that it was a a great experience at that studio. Fantastic. It was like being in a secluded heaven because it is so in the middle of nowhere. Uh, where we it actually has moved since we did the two albums to a new location, which is still I've been there also. And it's still a very awesome, beautiful, secluded, nice in the woods location. Yeah. But now, but when but when we recorded, it was even way further out in the middle of nowhere. It was down this private marked driveway that went for a long, long way through through woods and and farms and stuff. Uh, and it was posted way out of the edge. You know, there was was no public 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 traffic back anywhere in this area where the where the studio was, only people who owned a ranch out here or something. And there was only two or three of those. So it was literally in the middle of nowhere. There was, you could walk for miles down trails, not ever seeing anybody else. There were horses, you know, out in the fields, deer everywhere, wild animals, just an amazing situation of seclusion and privacy for doing an album. Yeah. And of course, now that you've been back there again, if it's kind of a different scene change now, right? Because now a lot of people have, you know, it used to be just kind of country that would record in Nashville, but now it seems like it's, uh, you know, everybody from all different genres are all kind of going into Nashville now and, and doing recording, regardless of what style that they record. That's true. That's true. They're, they're doing everything there is now and doing it as good as anybody now. Yeah. Mm. So why did you decide to um, revisit Goldilocks on Ogre Tones? Because it's a great song, damn it, that's why. No, I know it's a great song, I'm just wondering why you re-recorded it. Well, disclaimer, I want to at least say that I was hesitant about doing it. I, I don't like to mess with things like that that have already done what they've done, but the general consensus was, what's it going to hurt us if there's a new generation that gets, uh, you know, the song, you know, they hear it and they're not aware of our old stuff. Mm. That was the thought behind it. Uh, I personally... Yeah, you know, really could have taken or, or left doing it, but there were some other persons in our organization felt strongly about it, so we just went ahead and did it. Okay, okay. Yeah, I, I mean, to me, I think it's kind of a great idea because you, you, you know, you've, you've gone through several albums now, and unlike growing up where we would kind of search back and look at the whole catalog, I think as we go forward in music, there is kind of that short attention span theater that sometimes you have to give them a little bit of a pointer somewhere to to go back in time so to me i thought you know that that's probably a good idea to do that well if it had become a hit i would have just you know <laughs> taken all the credit for it <laughs> i just said now's my idea I, I nobody else wanted to do it okay <laughs> <laughs> no but truthfully i you know i guess it couldn't hurt us that that basically is why it ended up on there i mean i I mean, what's it going to hurt, I guess? Yeah. Yeah. Now, the, the, the tracks for Ogre Tones on, on the album after that, um, did you go back to bringing them in separately for those two because you were working in an outside studio with Michael? Yeah, we did. We brought in songs, and we did some writing together, too. Like, um, well, on Ogre Tones, I think it was mostly stuff that we just brought in and mostly dug, to be honest. Um, and then we you know, work them in the studio like we normally would in pre-production, you know, changing a part here or there, uh, a chord here or there, 
making everybody making their suggestions and kind of you know molding it into the things they became. I really like that album a lot. I think that um, it's kind of has all the mix of everything that's come before seems to appear on that one. So it's it's cool. And I also kind of like the. Just for me, I like the title, the play on words in the title as well. I, I I love when bands do stuff like that, and that one there is definitely one of those ones that falls in there with the ogre tone. So yeah, cool. I I've always thought of King's X as sounding, especially on the first album, as dark, murky, and like an ogre. And mm. I think that's where it came from. Yeah, yeah. Now, of course, the last album, the last studio album, we've had fifteen. picked it up the first thing i noticed was the old logo was back yeah yeah okay. and um and then i looked at the back of it and it had a side one and side two and i'm like oh this is old school did you think that the tracks actually lent that kind of the the, the listing on, on the back of it when you actually listened to it did you actually think like right the first six so songs sound like a side one of an album and then the next six are a side two yeah i mean i'm i'm, I'm sure it was uh intentional to to make the flow be like that, you know, while listed that way. Yeah. And we, on that one, I think we, we tried several different, different versions and I'm, I'm not even sure. That's probably a combination of everybody's ideas that ended up being that, but yeah, that was the idea. Just find the right flow all the way through to make it feel that way. Yeah. I love, I actually love that record. I think it's great. Like Julie cool. and move and all right. All great tracks. I think too, okay. that was that was the first one I I believe too that you guys are actually pictured on the cover. Uh, wow, is that true? I, no, they're not uh, on the cover. Wow, on fifteen? No, not the cover. No. Yeah, yeah, we are. Oh, all right, on yeah. the cover. Oh, okay. I'll have to go back and pick that. <laughs> yeah, we're we're standing there under the logo, and it's the. You're right. I never thought about it. it's the only album we're actually on the cover. Never thought of that. Yeah. <laughs> I'll go home now, Tyne. <laughs> I'll be like, where are they? <laughs> <laughs> Richie's sitting here going, God, he, it's something that isn't about gear and he knows about it. <laughs> <laughs> Only because it's more recent. <laughs> <laughs> My memory gets worse the further back it goes. I'm sure Doug and Jerry will hear this and go, what story is he telling? <laughs> <laughs> so I got to ask you, Ty, um, and King's X, is there any new music on the horizon? Yeah, there's always new music on the horizon. And okay. We're always writing new stuff. And and um, there's always the possibility of, you know, that next King's X album uh, soon. So we it just, we're just waiting for the right 
circumstance to do it the right way, I mm. think. Okay. Uh, so, because none of us are interested in doing it unless it's that. So, yeah. we're just taking our time about it, but, uh, yeah, I think everybody's writing music and has stuff that is uh, ready to go if if that were the situation, you know. Cool. I think that's a continuing theme, right? A King's X, it's, it's honesty and it's integrity and doing things your own way. And, and I'm glad that, you know, all this time later, it's like you guys are still doing those same things. And it's something that I think a lot of bands should look up to. Well, thank you. Thank you. I, I just... Um, if you're going to put that much of your life and heart and soul into something, you might as well do it uh, with everything you've got at your disposal to make it as good as possible. And we've got a lot of allies and friends and help out there. And if we can get things aligned and, you know, everything works for everyone, I, I would I would be happy for us to... Uh, to do another one. Mm. Okay. And, and in the meantime, it's not like you guys are sitting around on your butts either. Cause it's like, you, you know, doing constantly new things. I mean, I know I'm looking forward to, uh, to when KXM stuff comes out with Doug on there, I've heard a few things off it and it sounds fantastic. And you've obviously got your new soul stuff coming out and lots of stuff on the horizon as well. So it isn't like people are missing you guys as players. It's you're certainly out there contributing to the, to our musical landscape. Well, thank you. Yeah. We're, we're trying to stay busy. I can't wait to hear the stuff Doug's doing too. He's got so many things he's doing that are good that it's fun to hear. Yeah. Not to mention his uh, late, latest solo album what he put out also. So, yeah, we're continuing to work. Uh, and King's X is busy. We're going to be leaving here uh, just a little over a week, I think. I'd leave for us to go do some shows. And we're playing throughout May and looking at a uh, possible tour through June. And uh, so there is there is a lot on the horizon for us. We're going to be busy this year. Awesome. And definitely one of the things I really like when I heard the KXM stuff was that you kind of had that little essence of King's X that was in there as well. One of the things I like that Doug does is a lot of times he does these melody lines against drum hits and you hear him kind of do some of that against jerry and he was doing the same thing against ray as well and that was like the first thing that drew me into it was there was this king's x element obviously you've got doug's voice and his bass playing but there was just this little extra thing that he did and that was really the thing that kind of drew me right into those so it's great to, to kind of see that those elements that each one of you guys brings to your different solo projects that you're able to add those and sprinkle them through all the other things as well so it's, it's cool to see it carrying on cool man thank you i, I love seeing that with Doug and Jerry and anything they do too mm. it's awesome and I can't wait for Jerry's solo album he's got uh, a new solo thing he's been working on for a long time and I just I'm like you can't wait yeah we work we can't wait either we talked about it when we talked to him and it's like oh well I'm still waiting but we'll wait <laughs> well he's doing he's doing that thing the right way too he's waiting till it, it's right and I yeah. uh, can't blame him for it so it, it'll just be that much better can't yeah. wait are you involved in that toy at all are you producing it or playing on it at all I'm not. I'm not. Uh, this is done uh, with Jerry and some some really great players and guys that he plays with in the Jersey area that are that are fantastic and okay. great songwriters too. Yeah. Great. Great. Look forward to that then. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I tell you, Richie and I, we really appreciate you taking some time from your Sunday afternoon. Actually, a significant amount of time from your Sunday oh, my afternoon. Pleasure. This means a lot to us. We really do appreciate it, and we're. Certainly honored to talk to you as well. And I know me as a guitar player, I've been a longtime admirer of all your stuff. I've been one of those people that's coveted your tone for a long time. So it's uh, it's been great to sit down and, and have a great talk about this incredible catalog of stuff that you've put out. Yeah, it's been fantastic, Ty. I, I got to say, it's, it's been an honor for me to talk to you. I've been a fan. I've been a fan since '88, 
and um, <laughs> I'm looking forward to you know seeing you guys live because I've only seen you guys live once on with ACDC. I've never had the chance in our. You never oh, came wow. back to Ireland to play, so I'm hoping you know if you come to the Boston area that uh, I'll be able to go up and shake your hand and say say hi and say you know been a bit. I've been a big fan for a long, long time. Oh, thank you, man. I hope so too. And it should be easy to do because we. One thing we make sure we do at every single show is, and if it's at all possible, unless it's a situation where we are in a hurry to get to the next show and don't have a choice, we always go out after the show and meet every single person at the show who wants to come by and shake their hands and take pictures or whatever. We spend a good time with everybody. So, yeah, just come by and hang with us, man. Yeah, Glad to see you and meet you. Definitely, definitely. So, so Ty, where, where can people get a hold of you if they want to, you know... Find out about your albums, solo albums, or anything like that? Um, well, you can always go to tytabor.com. is the easiest one to remember, probably. Mm-hmm. Uh, but all all of my stuff is available through Molken, M-O-L-K-E-N, music.com. Or uh, the majority of my stuff is also available at iTunes or the normal places. Uh, my latest solo album is not on iTunes yet. But uh, it will be within about a week from today, actually. Uh, right now, it's just at Molkin Music. Okay, excellent. Cool. All right. So we, are, we really appreciate it, Ty. And um, I said, have a, have a great rest of the day. And hope to talk to you Thanks. again soon. Yeah, we'll talk to you soon, Thanks. Ty. Okay. Absolutely. Thanks much. Right. No Take problem. care. Bye. Bye-bye. Well, there you go. There was a whole hell of a lot of King's X information delivered to you straight from Ty Tabor himself. Of course, if you want to hit them up online, you can find them at kingsxrocks.com. And as I had mentioned way in the beginning of the show, if you want to get any of Ty Tabor's solo albums or any of the King's X merch, you can find that at molkenmusic.com. And that is M-O-L-K-E-N Music. So Richie and I, again, we'd like to thank Ty Tabor for taking a ton of his time to sit down with us and talk about the whole catalog, the history of the band and all that. It's a really cool thing for him to do. And we're hoping that in the future, we'll be able to do more of these with some other artists. So Rex, if you're listening to this and we know you are, Richie and I would definitely like to sit down with you and go through the whole entire Pantera catalog that you were involved with. You're welcome to do that with us anytime. And one last thing, just a reminder to pick up Ty's brand new 12 song disc off of Mulkin Music called Nobody Wins When Nobody Plays. And also, of course, the brand new self titled debut album from KXM featuring King's X own Doug Pinnock on bass and vocals. And you can get that at Rat Pack Records or, of course, you know, everywhere else, Amazon and other places too. But great album. Want to check that one out and pick that one up. And, of course, keep up with us on FocusOnMetal.net or FocusOnMetal.blogspot.com. Either one of those locations will also give you the links to all of our other social media feeds. So, Richie and I, we appreciate the hell out of you guys listening. We appreciate Ty sitting down with us. And until we talk to you again, remember... Focus on Metal! Everything else is insignificant. You're still here? It's over. Go home.